Hello there, my name is Femi Oshini, I'm the lead pastor of City Church Lagos. And if you're watching this video, can I welcome you to an initiative that we call Theology Day Series. Uh, what you'll find here is uh, a set of videos that you can use as a resource to help you think about how the Bible wants us to live in this world. And also those things will affect your lives as well. So if you do find them to be a blessing, can I ask that along with sharing these videos, that you also follow us on our YouTube channel. You can also follow us at City Church Lagos on all our social media platforms. Please like and comment um, on these uh, videos as well. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, let us go into the video for today. So welcome to our first video in this series. We've just called it The Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God. And um, what we hope that these uh, series will be is a real delve into scriptures. Like we hope that the people who are watching are those who love the scriptures i want to go deep into it but at the same time it will help us um, in how we think about how we live our lives in this world now, i'm going to ask you a question can you just imagine what a better future would be like a better future for uh, your life right now a better life how would it be would it be um a larger house a bigger bank account maybe living in a place where you have greater social amenities for you and your children Maybe live in a place where there will be little to no traffic at all. Uh, maybe better health for you. Maybe better relationships with your friends, your spouse, your family. Or maybe at your place of work, you could have more flexible working hours. Just imagine what that would be like. And next question, since you have imagined what it would be like, can you imagine where you can get it or what you need to get it? Now, for many of us Nigerians, I know what you are thinking. I know how I can get it and how I can get it is where I can get it. Because a lot of Nigerians have been migrating to countries in the West, in the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, um, to be able to get that better life. And the funny thing in Nigerian history is that we've had a series of immigration, uh, emigrations, people going away, and then people returning. And the question really, or the motivation behind this is really, People have an imagined future of what they want their lives to be. And then they decide where and how they can get it. And so they move to another country. And so you see that when we believe that in that country, the imagined life that we want um, can be given to us, the next thing is we start to move. We long for that better life and therefore we long for that country. I want to show you something in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 16. Listen to what it says. It says, concerning the patriarchs in the Old Testament, he said, instead, they were longing for a better country. They were longing for a better country. And because they were longing for a better country, they moved from the one that they were in. But later in the verse, it tells us, that that country was a heavenly one. It was one that God, who was no longer ashamed to be called their God, prepared for them. He said he prepared for them a city. In the next chapter, in verse 28, uh, chapter 12, it says that there were people who were receiving a kingdom. Now, I want to put everything together. They were looking for a city, a heavenly one, they were longing for a better country, but it was one that was made by God, a kingdom. In other words, 
whether we know it or not, when we are longing for a better life, and we are longing for where we can get that better life, a country, a city, a kingdom, what our hearts are longing for is the kingdom of God. And that's why this is such an important topic when you think about it. Because most of us are in states of lack of satisfaction with where we are. In fact, I'll say all of us. If you feel like you just hit something um, in your life right now, you're like, oh, I'm on such a high. Why don't you just wait? You may be experiencing something personally that is good for you, but people that you love may not be experiencing that. We all are, on, are looking forward to the kingdom of God. But it's often a misunderstood topic because many times we take one aspect of it and then we blow it all up as though that is the entire teaching of the kingdom of God. Which is why in the next four teachings, we want to briefly as we can, but also comprehensively as we can, deeply as we can, comb through what the Bible says about that. We'll touch on patriarchs of the Bible. We'll talk about the gospel of the kingdom versus the gospel of grace, the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, the, king, the difference between the kingdom of God and, uh, sorry, the, the connection between the kingdom of God and spiritual warfare, the kingdom of God and national building, the kingdom of God and our social fabric. All of these things we hope to be able to touch. The kingdom of God even and how we engage culture. So I hope you'll be able to stick with us. But I want us to start today because... And at this place, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 that we quoted, if you notice, he was looking at the Old Testament when he was talking about the patriarchs. And the implication is that the concept of the kingdom of God was already embedded in the Old Testament. So what we're going to do today uh, in this teaching is that we're going to trace the concept of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament in a brief way. But that enables us to then set the foundation to understand how the kingdom of God is then in the New Testament, the second teaching, and then how it applies to us today, and the third and the fourth teaching. All right, so let me let us get into the Bible now. Uh, first of all, the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, it tells us this, that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, which means God preceded his creation. And if he preceded his creation, he had the right to direct the creation towards the purpose for which he created it. Now then, God created many things, and then, finally, he created human beings in his, Im in his image. So let us make man in our image, mankind in our image. In verse 27, and then uh, 28, it says, when he created them, male and female, he blessed them, and he told them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. All right. Human beings were the apex of his creation. Now, what did he do after that? And this is really important. I'm going to combine some verses in chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, and chapter 3, verse 8. And listen to what he says. He says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat, from it you will certainly die. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What do you observe here? Let me tell you a number of things. First of all, we observe God's people, the man and the woman. Second, they are under God's law. Don't eat of this tree. 
And they are in God's presence as he came in the garden cool of the day, and they are in God's place, the garden of Eden. Now, as long as the conditions of this thing were met, that is, they lived under God's law, in God's presence, as God's people, um, in God's place, then they were going to flourish. They were going to have a wonderful time. But as we follow on, there are two problems that we identify. The first one is this. Even though this is very wonderful, this is not an incomplete picture in terms of God's purpose. Because God didn't just want two human beings. Remember, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Second, God didn't just want this place, Garden of Eden, to be his place. Because he then says, subdue the earth, replenish it. So the first problem is that it's incomplete. The second problem is that they eventually sinned. You see, when you had God's people under God's law before God's presence in God's place, what you essentially had was God ruling in his kingdom. They in the Garden of Eden was God's kingdom. But God wanted to see that kingdom grow. But he told them also they had to live under his rule. And immediately we then see eventually that what happens, they sinned. They broke the law. And so in Genesis 3 verse 23, God banished them from the Garden of Eden. They were out of God's place. They had disobeyed God's law. It's not that the kingdom of God then ceased to exist. God was still ruling over all of his creation. But it wasn't in the special sense that we had in the garden. The people weren't truly living under God's rule. Now before we go on, it's important to know how they fell. They fell because... God's adversary, the serpent, the devil, uh, the adversary of God called the Satan, tempted Eve by giving her a word in direct opposition to God. We see that in verse 4 to 5. You will not certainly die when God said they will die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice, God spoke to Adam and Adam was meant to speak to his wife. Now the serpent spoke to the wife to speak to Adam and he gave her a word that was in opposition to what God had said. In other words, he is the embodiment or it's the embodiment of evil, the embodiment of opposition against God. And if God has his kingdom, then the serpent also has his kingdom. The devil has his kingdom. Now, what does God have to then do? Because everything now is falling apart. And a series of things that God says to Adam, and then he says to the, and then he says to the woman, uh, the number of things he says, we won't go into all of that. But listen to what he says to the serpent, because even though it seems like the devil has got his way, actually God says you won't have the last laugh. In verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, the devil and his kingdom will eventually be defeated by a human serpent crusher. Someone will crush your head. But it's human because it is the offspring of the woman. And can I say that the whole storyline of the Bible can be seen as we try to trace this serpent crusher, this human serpent crusher, that is eventually going to defeat the kingdom of Satan. Trying to trace him, though, isn't always easy. 
But it is the key to understanding the kingdom of God as it develops throughout the Bible and really your entire Bible. So let's take the story a little bit further. As the story develops, sin multiplies. Adam and Eve's children, right? One of them kills the other one. Cain kills Abel, but they have another child. But sin multiplies throughout the earth, even though human beings multiply on the earth. God destroys the earth through Noah, uh, uh, through a flood, but saves Noah and some of his descendants. But eventually after that, their own descendants also live in opposition to God. And so God, they become nations and God sees that the curse of sin is upon them. The nations are cursed. So God then calls a man called Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham about undoing the curse that was now upon the earth. He calls Abraham and tells him what he's going to do through Abraham. And he tells him how he's going to do it. So I want to combine two verses, uh, two uh, parts of the scripture. Genesis 12 verses 2 to 3 and uh, Genesis 17 verse 6. He told Abraham this. I will make you into a great nation. Notice that that's a means. And I will bless you. And all peoples, not people, peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. All right, let's quickly observe certain things there. God says the nations are cursed. The peoples, that is the different peoples of the world are cursed. But through you, Abraham, I'll bless them. I'll bless them by blessing you first. So God is going to bless the world that has been cursed because of sin and the deception of Satan through this Abraham. Now, how is that blessing going to come about? God says, I will make a great nation. Now, even though later it says nations will come out of you, but there's going to be a specific nation that I'm going to make out of you. And it says kings will come from you. Kings are going to come. So there's going to be a nation that is a new people of God. And in that nation, there are going to be kings as well. Now, by the end of the book of Genesis, that nation, uh, come, uh, that, those people, is a family of Abraham. They're about 70. They go into Egypt, right? And then 400 plus years after, they are now under slavery. Now, how do we know they are the people? Because God raises a deliverer from among them called Moses, who has left, he, grew, he was a Hebrew, then grew up in the palace in Egypt, fled to Midian, and now God met him at Midian and is meant to return. And God told Abraham, Moses this, verse 7 of chapter 3 of Exodus, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. So God's own people are being now oppressed, the misery of my people. They are being oppressed by another nation. That's what we see just in terms of the physical. But we know that there's something spiritual behind that. We'll treat that a little bit more in our third, um, in our third uh, teaching there. But what does God then do? Now we notice we have a people. But those people are without God's law. Those people are not in uh, God's place. Not in Egypt, certainly not. Those people are not, they don't have God's presence, right? And those people aren't under God's king. They're just God's people. So when God raises Moses for them, you know what Moses does? God delivers them through the hand of Moses. So the people are out of a place that isn't theirs. And God has said, I'm going to take you to a place. We now call that the promised land. But before he does that, he brings them to a wilderness mountain called Sinai. And then God 
then makes a covenant with them in Exodus chapter 24, in verses 7 and 8, you can see there. He makes a covenant with them, and in that covenant, he then gives them his laws. So now you have God's people with God's laws. In the next chapter, verse 20, uh, chapter 25, verse 8, God says, you know what? I want them to build a sanctuary for me so that I can dwell among them. Ah, God's presence. God's people, God's law, God's presence. And these things was going to make them a distinct nation as they journeyed towards the promised land, God's place. At the end of the five, first five books of the Bible, the first five book, books of Moses, they are now at the cusp of entering. Moses does not enter with them. They eventually under, enter under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' former faithful assistant. They enter into that land, but they are not keeping God's law in that land. And we see this in the book of Judges. And sin just multiplies. And it really brings them into a terrible place. They have God's place. They have God's law. They are God's people. Right? They are meant to have God's presence. But they are certainly not living as people under God's rulership. Until God raises a king for them. The first king that was raised for them did not work out with King Saul. But God then gets them a king after his own heart. His name was David. And David was such a mighty warrior. David eventually brought prosperity to Israel. And David expanded the territory of Israel. But when David was old and David had, as it were, been given rest from all his enemies, he said, you know what I should do? I want to build a house for the Lord. Why? Because remember the um, sanctuary that Moses built for them, uh, for, for God. It was called a tabernacle, which was a mobile temple. It had to be set, it had to be turned apart, uh, torn apart when they were moving and then brought back together when they settled in their journey through the wilderness. But after that, the most precious and most sacred aspect of that tabernacle called the Ark of the Covenant, which had a seat that God manifested his presence. It was a seat that was mimicking the throne of God in heaven. That Ark of the Covenant was in a tent. Now, if there had been a mobile temple, all of a sudden they're in the promised land, why shouldn't God have a house of his own, a temple, a permanent temple? And so that's what David said he was going to do for God. And he asked a prophet called Nathan. And Nathan said, yeah, go ahead. But later, Nathan then said, ah, no, 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 no. You're not the one that is going to build it. And so we see this in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3 to 6. And I want to bring it to something because don't forget we have God's law. We have God's, uh, God's uh, people. We have God's place. We have God's king, David. But David wants to bring about God's presence in a big way in the temple. But he's refused from doing that. And so what happens? God says, not you, but someone else will do it. But God said to me, you are not to build my house. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 3. You are not to build a house. Uh, you are not to build a house for my name. Verse 4. Yet um, the Lord, the God of Israel, he chose Judah as a leader from the 12 tribes. And the tribe, and from the tribe of Judah, he chose my family. And for my family's son, for my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. Now, but of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon 
and listen to this. He says, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over all Israel. You know, the phrase, the kingdom of God, is not used anywhere in the Old Testament. But the whole concept is there. And this is the kingdom of Israel's God. That's what he's saying. That Solomon was going to sit over it. But Solomon is going to be unique because he said, he said to me, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts. Right? He's the one that will build my house and my courts. I will, I will, uh, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. And when God says his son, he's talking about, if God is king, he's talking about the human king that mediates God's kingship. And that's what Solomon was going to do. And you see, by the time you get to the time of Solomon, he then builds a magnificent temple for God. And the glory of God comes into that temple. It says when that happened, the priests were unable to even do their duties so that you have God's king ruling over God's people through God's law in God's place before God's presence. This was the apex of the kingdom of God fully established in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. Remember what God said to, um, to Abraham? That a nation will come out of you, and through that I will bless the nations, the Gentiles. That is, Gentiles are the nations that are not Jews. That's why in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3, he says this. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Verse 6, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Why? that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Does that then take you back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 12 with Abraham? God said, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. But sin came in and then God said, oh, the nations are cursed. But through you, Abraham, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Now it's saying, I'm going to do that through a nation that will come through you and kings. And so now we have that nation. We have that, those people. We have, those king, we have the king. We have the presence of God. In the temple and the promises that you are meant to be a blessing to all the nations so that my salvation will come to the ends of the earth and so through israel everything was going to happen wasn't it this was the nation now before i say a little bit more i do want to say this if you notice this this is the only time when god's people have been a nation it's very difficult to make the argument that nigeria is god's nation that australia is god's nation that Canada is God's nation. Why? In most of these places, we don't even have a king. And at the same time, we don't have God's law. How many of your presidents or our prime ministers, can we say, are God's son? That God made a covenant with them. Do we have a temple where God's presence is? So it's very difficult for us to call ourselves God's people, as though God has made a covenant with us. We may say sometimes that God seems to favor economically one nation above the other. That's different from saying we are God's own country. Whenever we embrace theologies like that, it makes us look down on other people and think that we have God's special favor. And many times, that means we're unable to critique our nations and we're always able to critique other people. It means that we're always able to justify the evil that our nation does because we are God's own people. And then we look at how the evil that we do, the killings, the innocent killings that we do in other nations because they are not God's people. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of complexities with 
geopolitical engagement, and I'm not trying to say we can, any nation can be so righteous and all of those things, no. But I'm also saying we have to be very careful how we build theologies, how we get prophecies that almost tie us to, uh, that are the basis of tying us to being God's people or applying, carelessly applying, things that God has said about Israel to ourselves. Even today's Israel, for instance, you cannot say is the same thing as this Israel. Today's Israel is not the same thing as the kingdom of God. And so we have to be able to bring the same critique that we'll bring to any nation, to the nation of Israel today. To say things like, if we bless Israel and give to Israel, that God is also going to bless us. Again, these are some of the things that actually um, uh, do not all go well with what the Bible teaches. But I do want to end with this. Though. So we get to Solomon's time and say, it's the zenith of the kingdom of Israel. But you know what? Everything doesn't go on well after that. Because Solomon himself has his heart taken because he's uh, away from God because he's married so many women, 700 of them actually, and still had 300 concubines. He had he married people that he wasn't meant to marry that God said explicitly shouldn't marry. Built up idolatry. Now God, after Solomon, splits the kingdom into two in Solomon's son's time. The first one eventually goes, God eventually punishes them by Assyria. Why? Because sin was also with them and it multiplied. That's the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. The smaller kingdom of Judah eventually too goes into exile in Babylon because sin also multiplied. God warned them over and over again by prophets, stop sinning, stop sinning. But here's the point. The people who carried the blessing of God also had the curse within their hearts. The people who God was going to use to bring the solution were also bearers of the problem. Because sin, whether it was Israel or not Israel, was in every human heart. So what was going to happen to God's promise? Because it looked like everything was now going to come to an end. Well, you see, the message of the prophets was not just one of judgment for sin. It was also one of faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God's plan that he would still bring salvation. Yes, there was no longer the Davidic king in the kingdom again because they were no longer a kingdom on their own. They were now under different empires from Babylon. They went to the Persian empire. After the Persian empire, then you had the Greek empire. After the Greek empire, then you had the Roman empire. They, had, they didn't have their own king. The house of David had fallen. And there was a prophet called Amos. Who promised something about the house of David, the tent of David that had been broken down in Amos chapter 9 verse 11 to 12. But I'm going to read um, the quotation of this in Acts chapter 15 verse 16 to 17. It says, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. It's not a place for where we praise. It's not about singing. It's not about music. David's fallen tent was David's lineage that had been broken and cut off because of exile. He says, and I will restore it. So that what? The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. God had not forgotten the Gentiles. God had not forgotten the ends of the earth. God had not forgotten the spread of his kingdom. But also, there was one more thing. You remember the serpent crusher? 
Well, that serpent crusher and the Davidic king, we ended up seeing through the prophets that they were one and the same. The one who was going to crush the serpent's head was going to defeat the devil, but was also going to be God's son, God's human king over his kingdom. And so I want to finish with two promises about that serpent crusher in Ezekiel 34, verse 23 to 24, and Jeremiah 23, verse 5. He says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. David had died a long time ago after this. So when he says, my servant David will be that king, that prince, he's talking about someone in the Davidic line, just like Amos chapter 9 told us. Another one says, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In other words, despite our opposition, human beings, and despite the devil's opposition, the kingdom of God was still going to be established. And it was going to come through a Davidic king, a Davidic king that will also cross the head of the serpent. Where can we find this Davidic king? Well, in our next video, we're going to trace the kingdom of God in the New Testament. See you then.